0: Can y'all hear that? No? Hello? Hello? Okay. Actually, let me take this off. Can y'all hear me? Good? Okay. Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland and Public Square. I'm Evelyn Burnett, co-founder and CEO of Third Space Action Lab and Third Space Reading Room. It's Tuesday, July 12th, and it is my pleasure to introduce the third forum, in a four part series here in Public Square, where we will be talking with some of the region's new leadership. Today's forum is the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on the philanthropic spirit and community leadership. Mr. Lipscomb was the first executive director of the George Gunn Foundation, as well as president of the City Club in 1980. So it's fitting that we ring the gong here on the Gunn Foundation green and hear from Tony Richardson the new president of the George Gunn Foundation. When Tony took the job, uh, right, 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 (laughs) right. When Tony took on the job, he did so knowing he could help kids that grew up like him. Experiencing homelessness, poverty, and losing family members to violence he had an opportunity to leverage his lived experience to deepen the understanding of issues the Gun Foundation confronts. Through its partnerships in, raised in Lorraine, Tony would go on to graduate from the okay, uh, University College of Law. A member of Lorraine's, uh, on, on Lorraine City Council becoming elected to a citywide seat. Most recently, Tony was executive director of the Nord Family Foundation in Amherst, Ohio, where he previously served as a program officer. He serves as a board member for Funders Together to End Homelessness, the Center for Effective Philanthropy, and the Corella and Bertram F. Bonner Foundation. Tony took the helm of Gunn Foundation after the retirement of Dave Abbott, who served in the role for 19 years. Tony now oversees grant making in the areas of climate and environmental justice, creative culture and arts, public education, thriving families and social justice, and vibrant neighborhoods and inclusive economy. I promise I'm almost done. So what's in store next for this era of philanthropy in Cleveland? If you have questions for our speaker, you can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. And with that, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Tony Richardson. All right, all right, all right. Very excited about being here today um, and being here with you all. Give yourselves a round of applause while I get my, my little thing out here. Okay. Um, so at Third Space Action Lab, we always start any conversation with anybody uh, with a soul check. But it's going to be kind of a long soul check today, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. Okay. So my first question, if, if any artist, any kind of artist, musical, um, any kind, right? Um, and their work were to describe your soul today, how, who would it be and why? Um, that's a tough one.
1: Um, wow. And so we didn't we didn't rehearse these questions. So you're, you're getting it, this is all organic, right? Straight from the heart. Um, I'll probably say Tupac Shakur. And um I don't know which album, because they're all great for me, but growing up where I grew up and how I grew up and the condition in which I grew up, um, when I first saw Tupac acting and and and, and making music, it just touched my spirit in ways that I had never been touched by an artist. Um I think dear mama was a a, a huge transformative conversation with tupac and the black community and women and and um, culture and it um it always resonated with me and it it, in so many tears and his journey and and how he was able to articulate it in the way that a lot of african-american young men in the inner cities were living and um i've always um valued that perspective him being an artist and not being able to play basketball, like so many other African-American or aspiring to be like Michael Jordan. He was Tupac, he was authentic, he was true. And that's sort of how I sort of model myself.
0: Yes, RIP. Okay, Um, if you could spend an intimate evening with someone you deeply admire, that can be anyone living or deceased, who would it be and why?
1: Well, I can't say I, deeply admire because I don't really know this person, but I'll probably be with my biological father who I've never met. And I had an opportunity to meet him when I was 25. I was a first-year law student, and um, he had owed a lot of back child support at the time, and um, he was looking to retire. And um, uh, I guess, again, he had owned child support, so I guess the state agency were uh, trying to reconcile his paternity or not. And if they were to do so, um, they would sort of take he would have to pay back those funds for me being supported by the state. And so I didn't show up, right? And I had never met this man, but I I understood at that moment by me showing up and establishing paternity, what it would do for him in his later years. And I didn't want that hurt on him, regardless of what he didn't do or couldn't be for me. So at 40, I'll be 40 in November, i love to have a conversation about why I did that, why I didn't meet him and then learn more about him and, and what makes him who he is. And, Share my, my journey, my family. I'm a father now, and uh I don't try to be the father that I always wanted, I try to be the father that my girls need in this moment, yes, right? Yes. And so um I'm healed from all that, you know.
0: Okay, y'all see where we're going today, right? Okay, cool. All right. Um, so this next question, uh, I'll, I'll try to give a little bit of context, but what I want to know is who are you? You started to talk about this a little bit, and I know a little bit in your story, like you're not originally originally from northeast Ohio, but but you're here now so tell me who you are how you how you got here
1: well my family isn't from northeast ohio they're they're from new orleans and um sort of migrated north like a lot of african americans looking for opportunities my grandfather actually moved to cleveland and then from cleveland moved to lorraine where you know cost of living was cheaper uh wages were a little higher in the steel mills and uh, he can sort of create this uh space for family um my grandfather so while i'm gonna start with this history because we are a continuation of that history right like that's the connective tissue. It's through that journey and through um that bravery and vision of, of, of moving a family to a community is why I'm here today. Uh, as well as so many people I see here today that have been a part of this journey. I feel like this is our moment. We're all here, not just a role in my development as a human being. And so back to the question. So my grandparents had eight kids, and my grandmother died when she was 39 years old, right? My mom was in the third grade. As I got older, why some times in her life she couldn't be a parent or a mom for me. Um, So, um, you know, my color, obviously I'm black, right? Like I'm I'm black to the core, I'm African-American, but I always say like black is a description. Why it doesn't tell you who I am. And as we know, these racial constructs have been created around by slavery, right? And if, 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 I can, if I consider you to be a human being as a white person, so I have to sort of diminish you, make you a heathen, three-fifths of a person. So now I can justify in terms of that freedom, this freedom movement, this freedom walk. Um, and at my core, uh, I'm constantly poking, developing, pushing my um, capacity to have different experiences uh, get outside of my shell to learn more about myself, the world, and community around me.
0: Okay. Um, so, uh, how do you explain? I want to stay in the family vein and who you are for for another minute. How do you explain what you do and perhaps reconcile what you do and um, the worlds that you have to navigate at a family cookout?
1: That's interesting because they don't. No one knows what I really do, right? Like. <laughs> Um, so I, I always talk about it in the space of like working in community to advance issues that are systemic, whether it's tied to gender, education, race, um, and for my daughters, like they understand like where I work, they know the George Gunn Foundation, um, but in terms of, I never talk of it or situate or, or, or couch it in the conversation around grants, I more talk about like moving communities for um, supporting, and working in sort of concert with people convening. Everything that we do beyond the grant is how I explain what I do. Because if not, my family, where can I get a grant? How could I
0: get a grant? Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
2: like, yeah,
0: yeah. It's like, we, like we, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one more question before we kind of pivot to, to talk more about philanthropy. Because I know some of y'all came here to talk about that too. But, um, and I hope this doesn't come off provocative. But I, I am a, a Northeast Ohio kid as well but from Youngstown Ohio shout out to Youngstown Ohio my mom my dad no and and no claps for Youngstown Ohio it's all right it's cool and and but Cleveland can be the you know the feel like the center of gravity so I'm curious what you think um Lorraine can teach or share with Cleveland what Cleveland can share with the country what the country can share right I know we want to talk about kind of extrapolated. well well, I
1: think that one thing that quickly comes to mind is I think in in some of the peripheral communities, whether it's Youngstown, Akron, Lorraine, um, East Cleveland, we're resource-strapped in ways that Cleveland isn't, right? So there are skills of of, of under-resource, uh, lack of resource, and so I find that those communities, including Youngstown's of the world, are are more nimble and work more collaboratively because they don't have the the resources that cleveland does also cleveland is culturally rich in ways that those communities aren't very diverse and so you get a a wide spectrum or a cross section of of experiences and people that come with from different countries and speak different languages so you have more of a melting pot and through that melting pot the marketplace of ideas become that much more robust and so you're more geared towards solution anchoring solutions driving solutions and then creating uh, uh and leveraging those 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 solutions to share nationally and i think that's um something that i've learned very quickly and then for the national sort of um perspective on this i think cleveland is a microcosm of like the the united states in terms of the diversity in terms of like um the progressive attitude and spirit and um it's a great place to be
0: okay we're going to transition a little bit to talk um about philanthropy and before i hopefully to situate that conversation um I'd love for you to talk to us about like, where are we? Um, how would you characterize this time? What most concerns you? And importantly, what what most energizes you and gives you hope? But, but where are we?
1: So I'll say what most energizes and gives, gives me hope is this idea of what we learned um, and how we responded as philanthropy, but as community to COVID-19 pandemic and how we got out of our own heads around lowering barriers to access really thinking um, collaboratively around like how we address systemic issues and showing up as a community and not sort of constrained by our own agendas or our own missions, right? We really um, were innovative and, and creative, and I hope we carry that spirit moving forward uh, because the way we were working, we figured out like we don't have to work that way, right? And so um, that gives me hope, a lot, of, lot of, a lot of hope around that. Uh, Where we are, I think um, we're in a unique space, Um, you know, so through those sort of COVID-19 response funds nationally, regionally, uh, we saw at the Center of Effective Philanthropy, uh, where I sit on the board and a board member to this day, um, a lot of uh, uh, communities that brought in community partners um, and allowed residents to sit on these boards to to decide where dollars were deployed. And so when we think about participatory grant making, budgeting, and how we get more approximate to community is something that I'm also hopeful for. Um, but it also created, um, in my mind, what uh, I can use an example, I like to tell a story. So there was a large national foundation that went on this journey around participatory grant making, brought in community stakeholders to decide how to deploy funds. And the biggest hold up and hang up wasn't people who didn't know grant making, the hang up was from the foundation folks who said, so now what is my job, right? So, so we are gonna have to th- really think about how we connect in a way that our idea of philanthropy transcends transactional grant making, but it's more about community collaboratives. And I always say this, foundations cannot realize our mission, we can't advance our mission without the expertise of our partners, those in community, and there is no hierarchy. We can have all the money in the world, but if we have nobody to, to deploy it to or to drive it, then what's the use of philanthropy, right? So we just gotta rethink how we show up how we partner and continue to partner in ways that we haven't traditionally.
0: Let's, um let's keep going there. Um, so I heard you mention a moment ago, and I, I think I've heard you talk before about the freedom movement. Um, one, can you say more, uh, say more about that um, and say more about the way, like the, the, the gun imperatives, right? Like how you must partner, how you support, how you think about investments, et cetera.
1: Absolutely. So in my mind, a free, how I was, oriented and 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 learned and, and um sort of situate this idea of a freedom movement i'll tie it back to the african diaspora and no matter where people uh black people are in the world we are the most oppressed most undereducated, the least amount of wealth accumulation most food insecure most housing inst- you know all the issues and i see uh our work around democracy climate um all these different pieces we will not be able to move an agenda and create these equitable, just um, communities without getting this democracy thing right. Um, so when I think about the gun imperatives, whether it's our thriving communities and social justice or it's our creative culture and arts, uh, as a newbie with fresh eyes, I can really see, and I'm not just saying that because y'all are here, I can really see the, the thread and the connectivity and the connective tissue between our program areas and how it's all based in justice, it's all based in freedom right? And even when we look at women's reproductive justice and and, and health, um, I don't believe in hierarchies in terms of like, I think that's just equally as important, right? I mean, because when we think about the the, the question of race or class or gender or sexual orientation, uh, there have been throughout history, uh, highly exquisite, sophisticated sort of um, campaigns and agendas to suppress and control the autonomy of people, the dominion of people, and, and so when I think about the enslavement of Af- Africans and people of African descent and the control over, over, over people, I, I can connect that to what's happening with women right now. Right? And um, so, so I think our work has to be multi-issue, multi-gender, multi-race. We have to work across these different issues to create a united front. And it is through that united front that we can push for ballot initiatives. It is through that united front that we can sort of create these equitable, just communities that we all say we, we desire to, to live in.
0: Um, I have so many questions, but I know we need to get to y'all's. I, I, I wanna throw out two more. Um, one, um, can you talk a little bit about the, the, the power? I wanna talk about power um, and power dynamics and power dynamics in philanthropy Um, but, but I also hear you kind of talking about, um, like tapping into a radical imagination. And one of the things that you and I have talked about is narrative change and narrative shift. So to put in a question, um, how do you right size the relationship and address the power imbalance in philanthropy with people? Mm -hmm. Um, and what role does narrative change, narrative shift, language, et cetera, play in that work?
1: I think narrative change is is everything, right? I mean, um, At the gun foundation we're really working toward being an anti-racist organization and only supporting organizations that are anti-racist period right and um i think it's really yeah
0: yeah clap for that clap for that
1: and so in terms of um what the power shift dynamic looked like i think it's a broader question about the social contract And we need to reimagine what that social contract is for philanthropy and under what terms are we as people and community willing to to give up our power? As I said earlier, um, philanthropy is power lies in this ability to sort of uh, fund in some cases, have these huge endowments, right, and networks and relationships. And so um, I think the shift has to come from folks just saying we're not, it's not how we want to work with you. Let's let's like let's renegotiate sort of what that relationship is because there's power in community. Any movement, any change that has happened in our country or democracy or any civilization has all been tied from those who had the least power. Right? So philanthropy is no different, right? But what's different about the Gun Foundation, and I can't speak for philanthropy, right? I can speak about the Gun Foundation in my short time, is that we want to be at that table having that conversation about what does that power shift look like. Because they've been doing it for years, way before me, and it's gonna last way after me.
0: Um, one more question ca- came up uh, as you were talking about that. What's been the, the 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 biggest or the toughest decision you've had to make in your new post? The
1: biggest, toughest decision. I don't come back to that because I don't think I've made any. Um, we made a lot of decisions. That's for us to discuss internally. Um, you know, it, it, right? I'm not being transparent <laughs> philanthropy. No, um, I don't even think they were, I don't think they were big. I think they were just, I'm, you know, I bring fresh eyes and a different perspective on things. And I can honestly say that. to those perspectives and I've learned a lot from them. And so we, how I operate, um, and I don't use this word internally, but I think they probably have picked up on it. It's sort of a very decentralized approach, right? Like. I don't have all the answers we're a team we learn from each other and we are truly a leaderful organization and there are a lot of leaders in our office i just happen to have the president title which just because my board made me the title doesn't make me their leader i have to earn that trust i have to earn that goodwill you know i have to be in a foxhole with them and uh, i think they appreciate that
0: y'all lucky (laughs) no so uh, one, my final question before uh, we turn it over, so please be getting your questions ready. Um, at Third Space, we talk a lot about the importance of the radical imagination. Um, a text that really drives our work is Freedom Dreams, um, The Black Radical Imagination by Robin D.G. Kelly. Y'all can come to Third Space uh, Reading Room and get that book if you'd like. Um, but I would love to know, like when you close your eyes Um, and you think about, and you tap into your most radical imagination, what does a racially equitable Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, U.S. globe, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What are people doing there?
1: It's thriving democracy. Uh, People-centered. Foundations don't exist. Those endowments are fully exhausted um, because we have reached this place of, uh, of, um, this utopian sort of experience where inequities don't exist. So we work ourselves out of existence for that to happen. And that's what I see if that makes sense or not.
0: I, I want you to go a little further. If you're walking down the street in a racially equitable Cleveland, what, what else is happening?
1: Um, get people outdoors like this of all colors, design background, um, you know, just to bring it really close to home, when we think about chronic homelessness, we see all these African-American people laying around. We don't see that. Um, we just see harmony, you know, if that even looks like something, right? But that's what I feel, that's what I taste. It's like this humo- like this harmonious vibe and spirit and energy where people um, are free and autonomous.
0: I love it. Okay, we are about to begin the audience I am Evelyn Burnett, co-founder and CEO at Third Space Action Lab and Third Space Reading Room. Today, we are enjoying the third forum in this year's City Club and Public Square series, where we are talking with some of the region's new leadership. We are joined by Tony Richardson, president of the George. Gu- we welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, and those joining via our live stream at City. You would like to tweet a question at the city club. You can also text them to 30-541-5794. That's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794 And for and our staff will try to work them into the program. May we have please.
2: Thank you for joining us today. This question is, statistics appear to indicate that Americans are less generous with fewer people and households giving to charity. Do you believe this is long-term, a long-term problem, and what can nonprofits do to help reverse this trend?
1: Evelyn, you want to answer that? No. OK. I told her we would share the stage. We're going to share power. I did say that, didn't I? Uh, so uh, what can you name the source of that? Do you know where that data set came from? Because I have different data.
2: This is a text question, so I'm not sure. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, there's several ways to, to sort of enter that, that, that question. I think um, at a high level, folks may be getting less because of inflation and, and because of the sort of folks being out of the workforce. We're starting to see jobs are coming back. People are working more. Uh, We see huge infusions of federal dollars and at rates and scales that we've never seen. So, maybe that plays a part into why people aren't giving because they maybe feel as though there's other sort of iterations of public money out there. I do think at a high level, I'd love to see a universal, above the line, just um, charitable tax deduction for all folks, regardless of their 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 um, wealth or lack thereof. so I think there's a myriad of, of, of reasons that could be happening um, in the ether. Uh, but uh, I have different data than that would suggest is that giving's up this from what I've heard. And also, too, I think that um, what we find is that African-Americans, I mean, I think the soul of philanthropy showed us um, that African-Americans actually give more per capita than any other race or ethnicity in, in the world. Um, so just changing the narrative around like the recipients and faces of philanthropy we give our time sweat equity and that's all philanthropy it isn't just dollars
0: thank you next question hi mr richardson first off thanks for for being here and speaking with us today i think often um we can get stuck in pretty abstract terms something like democracy or you know engagement can be very abstract in that we don't know tangibly what that might look like so i think a question like Evelyn's of thinking about, tangibly about imagination and what that feels, you know, tastes, smells like, can be really helpful in grounding us in specific examples. I mean, tangibly, and then how does that apply to your understanding of philanthropy?
1: Well, democracy is, for me, tangibly is citizen-centered, right? It's, um, it's access to uh, the promise of America and very tangibly um, automatic same-day voter registration, right? Like. Um, um, open space at city council, county council, general assembly meetings for folks to to share their ideas, thoughts, and concerns about how government isn't or it is working, Um, having that autonomy and and voice around um, candidates, candidates nights, um, how do we hold our elected officials accountable? Um, So it's one thing to go on a campaign trail and campaign on a set of priorities and ideals, It's another thing to bring people back midterm and say, hey, this is what you agreed to, right? And you've either gotten it done or you haven't. And if not, like help us understand what have been some of the roadblocks. So we don't have those very, those are very tangible. Maybe those are maybe two weedy examples of where or how democracy can function in a different way. I also think um, when you look at the numbers in terms of voters and who've been purged in terms of African-Americans, I think something like 2.4, million people have been purged off voter records here in Ohio. And I think governor DeWine won his last election by 2.1 million votes. Right. So that shows you, uh, so what are those accountability pieces? How do we draw those out? And I think philanthropy plays a great role and can play an even more impactful role in supporting organizations that are working, uh, to make our democracy function for everyone. What are those?
0: Ex- Next question.
2: This person said, "Can you dive deeper to the power dynamics between the foundation and nonprofits? How do you want to change this dynamic? Nonprofits are forced to rely on interpersonal relationships to drive funding. It's more about the relationship than good work of the nonprofit."
1: Absolutely, that's a great question. For us, it's it's and again, I, I um, I don't speak for philanthropy, right? And I don't speak, you know, uh, this isn't like the Berlin conferences where I'm going to tell everyone like. <laughs> You know how how philanthropy should look, right? But in terms of like uh, us, right? It's access. Uh, we do have a strategy, and so with that, there may not be um, there may not be natural alignment with with certain organizations. But that doesn't mean we can't have a relationship. That doesn't mean we can't connect you to other resources and community, and and not just money, but like whether it's elected officials or uh, organizations that are in this broader ecosystem doing similar work as you, um, capacity building support. Uh, There's a lot of ways, and um, I I think, you know, from a very very practical way, I think the first conversation you should have with anybody shouldn't be about what you want from them or how can they help you. I think for some organizations, it's more difficult because they don't have development officers, and so um, they have to be more uh, assertive, and and that's their jobs, and we respect that. But you're absolutely right. The issue is that there are way more organizations than there are philanthropic dollars, right? just what it is. And... Um, I would love to uh, work in community with residents, with nonprofit organizations on how do we design that front door in a way that, that works for them and not what we think that front door should be.
0: Next question.
1: Either you have a lot of questions or someone's texting the questions from... Okay, okay. It's all good.
2: Is that because the text question. I love it. I love it. <laughs> but. What access points do you believe many nonprofits and foundations miss when attempting to find diverse philanthropists?
1: So you have, in my mind, and I'm <laughs> we, we, we keeping the real today, right? We keeping the real today. Um, we have institutional philanthropy that's organized that that has a culture about itself in a way. Um, you have individual philanthropists who, in some ways. The 501c3 structure just doesn't work for them. They want to deploy resources very quickly. They don't want to work around boards. Um, and I think uh, the institutional philanthropy, I think, is where we have to do more work in terms of being more nimble, more flexible. Um, and again, however we design that, it has to be sort of partner-centric and partner-driven. So lower and barrier to access, really streamlining applications. And like, honestly, on the back end, when it comes to final reporting, that should be like one page. You did what you said you were gonna do with the dollars. Like, we don't need to have you write a five page final report when you can be out supporting the folks and doing the work of your organization. So we just gotta get really lean, really flexible, leverage technology, modernize, and just get real about like our power and influence and, and, and do it in a way that again, is designed and centered by the folks we work with and not like a top down bottoms, Um, that doesn't work.
0: Next question. Hey, thank you both for being here. Um, The question I wanna ask is what's giving you hope, but I'm gonna ask a different question. Um, I wrote down when you said campaign to suppress, and Evelyn, you put us into ecosystems a couple times, ecosystems, right, Lorraine to Cleveland, and I'm worried about the, comp- the campaign to suppress coming out of Columbus, Ohio right now. And as we fight harmful laws about how we protest guns in schools, honesty in education, which is my issue, I'm wondering if you can talk about how Cleveland philanthropy, nonprofits, citizens, community members can engage in the Columbus-level work that despite our best intention to be in community, pounding. And and, and we wreck our brains
1: in our office. And so at the foundation, um, we do a lot of sort of statewide democracy building work. Um, And a lot of those partners redistribute those funds to local communities uh, that are engaged in similar work. And um, one of the things I'm always curious of is, and what we know do- doesn't exist in ways that it, that it can, uh, like just robust infrastructure in some of our uh, Rust Belt communities that mirror Cleveland, but that but might be a microcosm of Cleveland, like East Cleveland, Lorraine, Youngstown. There are a lot of voters in those communities, but we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the organization. And what made Obama successful, a lot of things made Obama successful, but what made Obama successful in Ohio was the ground game. That his campaign invested in way in advance to really get into the the nooks and crannies of those various communities to uh register voters and not not just register voters but inform voters on the issues and then take like this issue-based approach to bring people out um and so it's this broader idea of like how do we find with those as you pointed out several different issues that impact us um in a myriad of ways and build really sophisticated um comprehensive um and succinct strategies that allows us all to be under one uh sort of uh, campaign and so to keep it very simple we got to expand the tent and we got to be able to make connections between my struggle and your struggle and how we're both struggling and we have a common oppressor right and so that that has to be the message
0: good afternoon um, my question is: How do you perceive the role of philanthropy in making sure there's pay equity and competitive wages to attract and maintain, invest in talent in the nonprofit sector? I know, as a leader in the sector, I so often get experience not just not necessarily from foundations, but from the community at large. Well, you're you know compensated because you. Do we can broaden that
1: beyond sort of our nonprofit, but just to our public sector in general. when We think about teachers and early childhood education. And point philanthropy can play a role. I think the foundation does some of that work. We support organizations that are currently engaged in some of that work. And I think for us as a sector, it's this idea of like sector resilience and how do we strengthen the sector? And so, um, yeah, right. And so I, I think there's a myriad of ways to approach what that looks like. Um, I know there are foundations nationally. We've had some really initial conversations around the edges to, 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 to explore what would it would look like to create sabbaticals for our, foundation, our, our nonprofit leaders and community. We've seen huge turnover. Um, we are uh, trying to find ways that we could really uh, imagine opportunities to get mid level leaders or those who are aspiring in leadership roles into leadership roles. Um, folks are tired, right? And they're underpaid and they're doing yeoman's work. And to that point, at the foundation, we want to continue to support general operating dollars, multi-year grants. And then also, when there are leadership changes, to really support those searches uh, and, and underwrite the cost of those so that they can find the right people at the right time to support and move their work along. So there's a number of things that we can do. I don't know if there's a silver bullet or not, but we are conscious of it. We hear it from our partners. And we saw the big resignation impact, not just for sort of the for-profit business community, but also the nonprofit community. And lastly, we also saw the big no, which was this place isn't culturally astute. It's not anti-racist. I don't want to work here. There's a lot of microaggressions, there's racism. And so we have to also plan for that as well. And so if gun foundation and other partners that we currently work with can really take on this anti-racist agenda, not only um, is it a shift in culture and mindset? It also creates workspaces and places where talent want to be, right? And so I don't know if I answered the question, but I wanted to share some insights around how I think about that.
0: Next question. Hi, much to think about already given your questions, Evelyn, and, and what you've shared with us. My question, Tony and or Evelyn, data was referenced. There's a lot of discussion in the philanthropic and not-for-profit fields about data-informed, evidence-based solutions. To what extent do you believe such solutions exist and ought to be drawn upon further, if at all? Thanks.
1: I, I'll just quickly add, because I think Evelyn, you should jump on this one. We have to continue to think about evidence-based practices, but we also got to expand what do we consider to be evidence-based. And, and um and how are we centering the lived experiences of folks and leveraging and, and, and accepting that expertise um, as we do one who has a professional degree in X or has gone to this business school or this mas- has a master from this social um, um, uh, master's program. Um, so it's just it's expanding what we mean by evidence-based. It's also uh, really unpacking quantitative versus qualitative data. And then also like if we're gonna sort of have data at the center of our work, then it has to be sort of comprehensive and exhaustive for everyone. We can't pick and choose who data who has to submit data versus who doesn't. And then how do we align it across a broader ecosystem so that we are comparing apples to apples when we're talking about outcomes and impact?
0: Yeah, I would um, just say quickly to, to build there a little bit. Um, one, I always think about like whose data you know, to this point about the, the evidence, whose evidence, for whom, for what. Um, I've also, and 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 I, I'm exhausted with the data, if I'm honest, right? Like, if you're black, you're brown, you're a woman, you're oppressed, you're like, how much more data do you need to see to do something, right? Do something. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of data. I'm, you know, who has time to read all this stuff? But um, something that Tony said earlier that, Um, I've been thinking a lot about is is narrative and narrative change right it's to me it's it's narrative that gets little Tamir Rice killed in a park in two seconds right because he's bigger and stronger and more dangerous and right like that's the work is makes you need to clutch your purse right that the only people that can solve problems are the people in the ivory tower data for sure I think there there is room for that stuff for sure but um but but day uh, narrative um I just read I started reading some non-fiction again I think that um most of us like when we are thinking about solutions when we get asked that question about radical imagination what does it smell like you know I'm starting to get you know freedom in Cleveland smells like sweet potato pie to me you know what I'm saying right and if we can't like imagine something different we just sort of put lipstick on the stuff that we've seen before.
1: And I'll just add one data point that I think is so important as I watch buses and cars ride through the square is this idea of you know, new data and research that's coming out saying that we need to reach peak carbon by 2025. And if we don't, um, there will be uh, irreversible sort of destruction that's occurred uh, around the globe. And so as we think about climate and data and, and those who are most impacted, um, uh, live in communities and around the world. Um, and quite frankly, they're not as developed as the the biggest emitters of of, of greenhouse gases. And so I, I would be remiss if I didn't name that. I did mention climate now several times. While you're staring at me, John, I didn't want this to be a, a thing. Uh, but these are real issues, and, and the data speaks to it. And um, we have to get more serious and invest more and in, in more education around the impact of climate on all of us.
0: Next question.
2: Good afternoon. Um, I'm wondering if you can
1: speak to a particular success story or project that the Gunn Foundation or the
2: Nord Foundation has supported in either Cleveland or in Lorain County that you think has been particularly successful. Um, I think, I'm curious to know about how proud you have supported
0: as a, a foundation leader. I'm sure there's so many of them, but I I want to know like
2: one.
1: <laughs> there's honestly like th- this is not okay. Like th- you should never put me in this position.
0: Oh,
1: uh, and she, she walked off. Oh, uh, there are a myriad of from 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 housing first work here in Cuyahoga County to Lorain County work we've done around public edu- public education and, and, and sort of school turnaround in Lorain and Cleveland. Um, I mean, I can go down the list Ohio rise today, just hearing about 5,000, you know, young folks being a part of the system as of July 1st. I mean, I can go on and on and on about the systems levels work that is, um, that, that I've been a part of in, in ways that, um, and I must say that I don't do the work. It is those amazing partners and, and innovators and experts who've been on the ground grappling with these issues for decades that, I was able to sort of work with, learn from, and support them. And so without those organizations, I couldn't, one, answer that question, and two, that work would have never been done.
0: Next question. Thank you.
1: Good afternoon, my friends. Um,
0: Tony, every time I hear you talk, it just gives me a sense of hope and energy. Um, I think about the moment that we're in in the city and the region, and I think office, whether it's down at
2: to
0: hear your thought about how do we take advantage um i think it's uh priority
1: and and, and talk about um how we see our work evolving where is opportunities to leverage share information challenge each other that's so important right we have to challenge each other in a ways that are respectful professional but that's how we move things Um, So it's really, um, like, really comprehensive um, syncopation across our respective worlds and rooms, because we're all, in some ways, are (laughs) a centralized thing where leaders, folks that are closest to the work, our partners, our staff, our team, um, that are closest to it, that can really think more comprehensively about a 10-, 15-, 20-year plan as opposed to a one-year plan or a one-off project, right? How do we think, uh, again, more comprehensively about our respective resources, points of levers, and then really drive that work um, here in a here in the city and in the region?
0: Can you say a little bit more about uh, what respectfully challenging each other has or should be like for us?
1: I can talk, I could because, uh, right, it's not personal. And, and again, sometimes, you know, I, I bring me. and so a lot of these nonprofits that are supported, Cuyahoga, Cleveland, uh, Lorraine, Lorraine County, I've been an end user. so I me, right like and for the folks who are, are, are in communities still grappling with some of those issues that I've been fortunate to transcend. but there are so many people. so if I can't come in and show up now that I have access that I don't need to be here, right? Like we didn't like work this hard to didn't get in the room and assimilate. That is not the work.
0: Right. I better, I better hurry up and wrap us up. So, is there maybe one last question?
2: <laughs> this person wants to know what are your thoughts on philanthropic foundations operating in a spin down, and how do you see Gun operating to go beyond the limits and make transformative change in Cleveland?
1: Well, Gun will continue to sort of operate in a way that, as mentioned earlier, at the foundation uh, went to ten percent sort of payout and. 2020 2021 this year we're looking at seven percent percent as our floor and at some point when we get to a place where you know um there's more equity in in our community more justice the gun foundation may not need to exist right but it's so much beyond the grant it's the social capital and connectivity it's the advocacy work it's the um um it's the the thought partnership and leadership that is so much a part of what we do um that regardless of we're doing grant making or not, there needs to be some entity here, whether it's a think tank or some organization that comes together, holds this sort of community discourse to talk about issues of our day. Um, and I think for all philanthropy internationally, there's a lot of conversations about spin spend downs, but you have to do it in my way, in my mind, in a, a very thoughtful, equitable and intentional manner so that you don't lead to further disruption, right? So say we spend down and you place dollars at X entity that is a racist entity or supports infringement on women's rights. Yeah, we spent down, we left the money, we got rid of the money, it's in some other entity, but it's in the hands of the oppressor. So we gotta be really, really mindful around what that looks like, what that entails, and how we go about doing it. Shout out to Zuri, Lior, my wife, Lacey, I said that, but they live
0: and all that. Are there Tony's so succinct, is there another question? It looks like it's good.
2: Yeah, 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 come on. So this last question is, as a healthcare mecca, how can we leverage philanthropy to advance health equity through diversity, equity, and inclusivity, and research to convert evidence to revolutionary policy?
1: Wow. Um, I
0: had an hospital systems—they are
1: working toward um, those goals and initiatives. Um, We are very fortunate to be in in a region and community where we have high quality healthcare systems and and professionals. Um, I think the role of philanthropy is sort of, again, um, where there are bigger dollars than ours. Sharing information about what we're seeing. You see the big investment from the Cleveland Clinic to the Lead Safe Coalition, right? That work is started in community with partners, with philanthropy, uh, and had that work not organically started would the Cleveland Clinic had a conduit or intermediary to sort of pass those dollars along. So if we can continue to organize, we'd love to see the uh, hospital systems get involved and say yes, plug uh, shamelessly. Um, but there are so many opportunities and, and, and in their defense, I, I know some of these folks and leaders and and um, and, and board members and they are gung-ho focused on that very issue you just named.
0: Um, as we close, I had a, a final kind of reflection for, to, to ask you. Um, Harry Belafonte is often quoted saying that art and artists are the gatekeepers of truth. What's the role of art, artists, creatives, creativity, imagination, um, in the change that, that, that you are um, leading and, and, and supporting?
1: Absolutely, I, I think I agree with Harry Belaf- I, 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 agree with, I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment, right? And um, I think what Assembly is doing, uh, more, um, investment in, in hip hop culture yes. and, uh, and, and, what we can learn from around organizing, around democracy, around issues in climate education. I'd love to see more investment there, but I do believe that creatives deserve a seat at the table. Um, and, uh, I've seen in communities, this is a book called immigration Inc. And what it does is it laid out, um, um, examples. i to bring it back to art, uh, examples of where communities have brought in sort of folks and given them free rent, free expenses, and just to create and design. And these entrepreneurs were able to sort of build out and build strong companies, um, because they were given that space to create. And that's how I think about creatives, right? Like I'm in conversations with Jennifer sometimes about work and she just brings a different perspective and lens because of how her brain is wired and how she sees the world. And so I think we'd love to see, uh, sort of some department at city hall that, that has, and features art and artists. Um, I'd love to see more uh, uh, investment and not just sort of our anchor traditional arts institutions, but some of our grass tops, grassroots organizations or individual leaders who um, are creative, but don't necessarily have access to philanthropy or some of the more traditional spaces where funding exists.
0: Today, we are in public square in downtown Cleveland, listening to the third form in the city club. We just heard from Tony Richardson, president of the George Gunn Foundation, which was the James S. Lipscomb Memorial Forum on the philanthropic spirit and community leadership. Support for the City Club and Public Square comes from RPM and Thompson Hine. The City Club and the community series is also made. City Club will be back at 850 Euclid to discuss how to support the whole child in our schools. Dr. Lisa DeMore, author and senior advisor of the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University, with local and statewide experts in education and child well-being. 15th, we will kick off our behavioral health series with IdeaStream's Marlene Harris-Taylor and local behavioral health experts. They will examine the pipeline of behavioral health care here in Northeast Ohio. City Club's final public square forum will be next Tuesday, July 19th. We will be joined by Lila Mills, Jim Crutchfield, and IdeaStream's Rick Jackson to talk about Cleveland's new nonprofit journalism initiatives. You can learn more about all of these forms and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Tony. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I am Evelyn Burnett, and this forum is now adjourned.